a town called Nowhere. Chapter 7 The Wager The saloon was a shoddy two-story box of a building, made from unfinished boards that had not fared well in the desert sun. Above the awning was a sign, painted directly on the wood, that read, Morning Star Saloon, Jethro Earp, Proprietor. Jethro was happy to tell all the patrons that he was related to the famous lawman and saloon keeper with whom he shared a last name, but in point of fact, Earp was not his real last name, nor was Jethro his real first name. But other than that, he was a reasonably honest man for a saloon keeper. In his travels, Archie had become familiar with the uniquely American institution of saloons, but the Morning Star was something unexpected. While no expense had been wasted on the outside of the building, the inside was lavishly decorated, and open two stories to the rafters. Around the top of the room were what appeared to be opera boxes, most with curtains drawn and some with painted ladies hanging over the rail. A heavy, red-faced girl with strawberry blonde hair called out to Archie and waved, and the others joined in. Archie didn't know how to take this, so he looked down at the floor. It was made of unfinished planks heavily stained with tobacco juice around the spittoons, and here and there with what could be liquor or just as easily blood. The saloon was crowded, and a large man in a fancy suit was addressing patrons who were not otherwise occupied playing pharaoh or poker or, in one case, sleeping on the floor. And you may well ask how I survived the onslaught of those unspeakable savages and subsequent crash to find myself alive here among you, my fellow men of the West. No worse for wear, and friends, I have an explanation. You was just lucky, called out a tired miner who was leaning against the bar to avoid falling down. Lucky I am, indeed, my good man. Indeed, some would say blessed, but not in matters relating to highwaymen of any race, breed, or nationality. No, sir, I was fortunate to have made the acquaintance of a true genius of our age, the modern Hippocrates, to whom the secrets of the ages are known, Dr. Amadeus Bartolomeo II, who has rediscovered the sacred wellspring of panacea for our troubled modern age and here he produced a small bottle of patent medicine from his jacket pocket. A marvelous elixir which has restored me from my broken state to the hale and hearty creature you see before you. Did it give you all those extra words? cried a voice from the back. A sweet whisper in Archie's ear said, Don't believe a word of it. I was on that stage, and I am perfectly fine. Archie turned and saw a lovely woman dressed in nothing more than a corset and petticoat. She smiled hungrily and said, I escaped with nothing more than a bruise on my leg. Would you like to see it? Archie was flustered by this and, at a loss, blurted out, Archimedes Croyton, at your service. There's a thought, she said. Why don't you come upstairs with me, Mr. Croyton? I, um... You are quite forward, aren't you, miss? Alice, just Alice, she said, wrapping her arms around him. But if you want, you can call me yours. Archie looked around desperately, not sure what to do. 
From across the room, he saw McAllister, red-faced, plowing through the crowd towards him, grinning from ear to ear. He clapped Archie on the shoulder and said, They've only Irish whiskey in this godforsaken place, but I'll buy you one anyway. He tipped his hat at Alice. Mom! As they bellied up to the bar, Jethro dragged Dr. Krupp out by his ear. Not to be silenced by this rough treatment, the good doctor bellowed, Look for my wagon! Discounts for quantity! Perfect for hangovers! Jethro hurled him through the door of the saloon, and he was heard from no more. Archie watched Alice lead another man up the stairs and said, Are they all so mercenary here? McAllister laughed heartily and said, She's in the business of making money, lad, and business is good. The mercantile finds its way into everything in America, doesn't it? Are you not getting paid? Well, of, of course, but... Then there's your answer. They toasted and drank. It was awful stuff, really. But after a long and dusty ride, and even in spite of the strange, paranoid reception of Monsieur Dumont, Archie found himself excited to be on an adventure. Even if nothing came of it. Even if, in the end, broken and penniless, he was at last forced to go crawling back. Best not to think of it. At least he would have seen something of the world. And besides, there were fortunes to be made here in the West. And with a fortune would come the power required to spit in his brother Reginald's eye. They tossed back another whiskey, and Archie's spirits rose even more. He turned and saw Jane Siskin at the entrance. Gone were the rough leathers of her traveling garb and the battered gray hat. She now wore a simple blue dress, and her hair was down, still damp from the bath, but already winding with natural curl. In spite of himself, Archie said, My, my word, she's quite... McAllister leaned in and said, You may be a prince where you're from, your excellency, but lad, she's a queen in this land. Mule queen, but a queen nonetheless. And then McAllister walked into the back. Archie cried out after him, I'm not a bloody prince! From over his shoulder, he heard Jane say, You are a prince! I knew it! The bartender slid a glass and a bottle of light brown liquor across the bar to Jane, and she raised the empty glass in salute to Jethro. Archie thought her smile was the prettiest thing he'd seen in months. What a transformation had come over this hard-driving woman. As Jane poured, Archie protested, I told you, I am a second son exactly nothing. Usually someone in my position has some power, influence, and employment, and is a man, in some measure, to be reckoned with. But I have been disowned, for you see, my brother hates me. What did you do to him? Nothing that brothers have not been doing to brothers since the dawn of time. It was our father, you see. He loved me best, and he never let my brother forget it. To be sure, he wasn't as bright or as diligent as I, but that was no cause for such abuse. I cannot imagine what my father was thinking, or how he thought it might turn out when he was gone. Perhaps he thought he would live forever. That's not a thought much entertained in this part of the world. I would imagine not. Have you dispatched a team to recover my freight? 
Sir, despite the best of intentions, I'm unable to do so, said Jane, suddenly becoming formal. Archie grew stiff. What do you mean? My men, such as they are, she said as she swept her hand around, indicating the general debauchery in which Archie recognized some of the Teamsters from the journey into town. At least one was catatonic, and several others weren't far off. McAllister was now engaged in an arm-wrestling contest in the corner around which men were gambling and shouting. Another of the Teamsters was sitting next to the piano, singing along as loud as he could with a song he didn't know the words to. And another two of the Teamsters were following poxy-looking women upstairs to the boxes. Archie frowned with comprehension. Jane snagged an empty, if not exactly clean, glass from the bar and poured him a shot of the light brown liquor she was drinking. Come on, my sweet prince, let your hair down a little from that funny hat of yours and relax. Your hunk of metal will still be there in the morning. Archie drank the shot and winced. Good Lord, what is that? Tequila. Mexicans make it from a cactus, I hear tell. Yes, that would explain the spiky taste. See, said Jane, slapping him on the shoulder and pouring him another. I knew you was all right. Settle in and let's get down to making bad choices with the rest of this night. In the back of the room, McAllister slammed his opponent's fist onto the table and cheers erupted. Archie paused a moment, considering his situation with a sad smile. Then, resolved, he picked his pith helmet up off the bar and said, Sadly, mademoiselle, my day is not done, so my evening cannot begin. Then he turned and strode out of the foul air of the saloon. God damn it, said Jane. Then she shouted, Red, come on, we gotta save our headstrong prince from himself. While McAllister gathered his winnings, she took another shot of tequila. Then they went in pursuit of their strange Englishman. They found Archie struggling to assemble a team to pull a wagon. Archie said, You think I cannot recover the cargo on my own? Mister, from what I've seen, I can't even be sure you can find your way back to the cargo, said Jane. Archie looked to McAllister. And you? Not doubting your spirit, sir but we had a team of ten men to help load those wagons. And we needed every one, as you may recall. Oh, there is that, Archie said with a smile. Nonetheless, the way must be found, and I shall find it. On my own, it appears. But if I might, perhaps you would care for a wager. Keep your money, you'll never pull it off, said Jane. Then odds? It's impossible! That's a very strong word, impossible. It is, lad, said McAllister. Now come on, I'll buy you a whiskey and we'll forget this foolishness and we'll go and fetch your box in the morning. Perhaps you're right. So let me amend my wager. I say that I can recover that crate before sunrise using only two men, some rope, a block and tackle, and two sixteen-foot beams. Two men, said Jane, bristling at the implication. Or a man and a good woman, said Archie with a smile. And if I lose the wager, I will pay five dollars to every one of yours, and I will cover any bets up to one hundred dollars. Now, 
Do you have the courage of your convictions, or are you, what was the phrase, ten horns? Tin horn, said Jane. One word. As you say. McAllister produced his winnings from the arm wrestling match and said, Down for twenty-five. They both looked at Jane, who nodded and said, Hell, I'm good for twenty-five. The moon rose shortly after sunset, a waxing gibbous, so they had plenty of light to ride by. McAllister drove the wagon, this one pulled by a team of six horses. The oxen were still worn out from the heat. They were terrible animals for the desert, but for the heaviest load there was nothing else. Life was hard on man and animal alike in this place, but it was God who put the silver in the ground. So here they all were. The road to Bisbee seemed easier in the chill of the night air, and the landscape less harsh and foreboding in the moonlight. They reached the wagon quickly, and McAllister surveyed the wreckage and said, There's no way you're getting that crate onto this wagon without a crane or more men. Why, my heavens, I just now realize that you are correct, and I am frightfully embarrassed to have brought you all this way, said Archie, laying it on thick. Then pay up of a powerful thirst that needs attention. A distressing yet all too common ailment among Scotsmen, I am told. I shall endeavour to be quick. Archie was as good as his word. As McAllister and Jane watched him, he lashed the ends of the beams together as they stuck out from the end of the wagon. McAllister commented, I'll give him this. He's got an enthusiastic look for one about to lose a bet. Archie surveyed the position of the broken axle wagon. In the moonlight, the gigantic crate atop the wreckage of the wagon looked more like a ruin of an ancient civilization than it did like something that could be budged by mortals. But Archie proceeded undaunted. He counted his steps across the road and marked a divot in the earth with his boot. Mr. McAllister, if you would be so kind as to plant the stake right here. Why, of course, your lordship, said McAllister, and he sat to pounding the heavy wooden stake into the ground with a twelve-pound hammer. He made the heavy blows look like easy work. As he did this, Archie and Jane dragged the beams over to the broken wagon. With effort, they lifted the lashed ends and propped them up on the wagon above the broken rear axle. Then Archie attached a rope to the top of the beams and opened them into two legs. When he had each leg seated, he tied a rope from the top and played it out to the stake in the ground. Then, with McAllister's assistance, they wrapped the rope around the stake and hauled the makeshift crane into the air. As Archie made the rope fast to the stake, Jane shot McAllister a $25 look of concern. Not to worry. Let him have his wee bit of fun, even if he can lift a crate. There's no way in hell he can swing the box onto the new wagon. Archie smiled at Jane and said, He's right, you know. There is no way I can move the box onto the wagon. Then why are you smiling? asked Jane. It is simply the resolute and indefatigable optimism that is the birthright of every English gentleman. McAllister scoffed. 
As Archie climbed up on the wrecked wagon and made the block fast to his makeshift crane, he said, especially when in comparison with the dismal pessimism of, say, your average Hibernian, always with them what cannot be done. I think it has something to do with the bleakness of the landscape, the fewer hours of daylight in those far northern realms. McAllister said, his brain's been addled by breathing the thick smog of London town. Archie looped rope around the back of the broken wagon and made it fast. Then he hooked one side of the triple sheave block under this loop. He took another length of rope, made it fast, and fed the other end through the blocks. He then tossed the bitter end to McAllister and stooped to chalk the front wheels of the broken wagon. His preparations complete, he said, If you please, Mr. McAllister. With a few short heaves on the rope, the back of the wagon lifted clear of the desert floor, leaving the rear wheels drooping inward on the broken halves of the axle. Archie pulled each wheel and section of the axle out and let them drop on the ground. Then he maneuvered the wagon they had brought around and backed the wagons up end to end. It was the work of a few moments to remove the sideboards, then Archie was able to back one wagon underneath the other. They lowered the broken wagon onto the working wagon and tied it tight. Archie said, You neglected to consider the wagon itself as a lever. Jane said, Hell, seems like our mistake was doubting you. And she beamed with pride at the strange Englishman. McAllister hefted his coin pouch with a bitter smile on his face, torn between admiration for the work and disappointment at losing the bet. McAllister moved to remount the wagon, and Archie said, No, no, the bet is that I can get it back to town, and I'll see it safely there on my own. Jane handed her reins to McAllister and climbed up into the wagon next to Archie, and off they went, as easy as anything. McAllister kept a respectful distance behind, not wanting to hear the conversation, and knowing better than to breathe a word of his fears to Jane. Mule queen she might be, but McAllister knew, deep down, she was of a different class than Archie, and he'd seen what came of the hired help dallying with the nobles. Oh, for sure, in America they would tell you there were no nobles and there was no class. But McAllister just shook his head at such talk. There were classes everywhere. Only here, they hid the lines. From what he had seen, it just led to more catastrophe. At such price freedom? Still, he couldn't help but like this Croyton. He had a care for his work, and the most sand of any man he'd seen out west who didn't carry a gun. So as they rode back to Grantham, he stared up at the moon and thought of a girl he had known in Aberdeen a long time ago and a world away. <laughs>